Pray, Jesus, that you would open us to you and open your word to us. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and fill all that we do. Fill my words. Open the text. Lead us to your heart. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start by asking you a question this morning, and the question is this. What kind of Christian are you? What kind of Christian are you? Now, by this, I don't mean, did you grow up Baptist, or are you a former Roman Catholic, or a Pentecostal, or are you Anglican through and through, which might be a delightful blend of all three of those things. I don't mean, do you prefer praise music with drums and guitars, or traditional hymns with organ and choir? And I don't mean, do you prefer kind of a relaxed, low-key liturgy with high energy, or a very formal setting with meditation and quiet and structure. I'm not talking about those things. When I ask what kind of Christian you are, what I mean is, are you a tennis ball or a blueberry? Yeah, you heard me right. Are you a tennis ball or are you a blueberry? I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a moment. First, let me remind you what the New Testament says about the church. Now, whenever the New Testament talks about the church, it's not talking about buildings, and it doesn't mean the services that we worship in on a Sunday, though both of those are important things. I like to be in buildings in the summer, and I sure like to be in church on Sunday morning. Most often when the Bible talks about the church, it uses the Greek word koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. That's your word for the day. And the next time you have that crossword puzzle answered, there it is. Or you'll be playing trivia someday and you'll go, thank you, Chris. Koinonia. You just wait, it'll happen. But what does the word koinonia mean? Well, thank you for asking. The word koinonia means fellowship. It means community. But it's more than what we tend to think of fellowship or community. It is a deep spiritual interconnectedness based upon a common faith in Jesus Christ who has saved us. That's what koinonia is. A deep interconnectedness based upon Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us. And that gets me back to tennis balls and blueberries. I believe God gave me a picture, and I want to share it with you today. Sorry, I'm banging and making noise. Shared it with our Daniel Island campus last week, but God is kind enough to open it up for me two weeks in a row. Imagine that. He might want all of our church to understand this. Now, some people think of the Christian community as being like this tennis ball container. Can you see the balls in there? Please, you have to answer, or I'll just keep talking. <laughs> you can see them in there. I brought a clear thing. Some people think of Christian community like this. Everybody's inside. It's safe. It's orderly. And the ball's on this side. Never have to talk to the balls on that side. And it seems as though there's one ball in the middle. Maybe that's me getting banged on by both sides. 
And the irony is you could take one of these tennis balls out of this container and you know what happens? Nothing, except there's more room for the other ones to find seats. But that's not what God means by koinonia. That's not koinonia. I'm going to put that over there for you to look at. No, koinonia is a lot more like a jar of blueberries. You may not be able to see that because the blueberries have turned juicy. <laughs> it's interesting. When you look at them, there are different shapes and sizes. They're basically round, but there's all kinds of variety within them, though they're all blueberries. And, you know, you might pop one in your mouth and it's okay, but if you get a mouthful of these things, it's fantastic. And, man, if you put them in your pancakes, you're soaring. Christian communities are a lot more like this jar of blueberries. Notice how they kind of bleed on each other a bit. And it's hard to determine which one is which after a while. And here's the thing. If you leave them in there long enough, you know what they turn into? Blueberry wine. See, we're Anglican. Blueberry wine. <laughs> and that's intoxicating to the world. And it brings about a great kind of joy. A great kind of joy. Let me set that over there. When the Bible speaks of koinonia, fellowship, community, the church, it's describing the family of God a group of diverse people brought together, interconnected through a common faith in the risen Savior and Lord Jesus Christ who have been brought into something new, a fellowship. And that brings us to our text today in Acts chapter 4 in our preaching series, Outward Bound. So if you want to take out that scripture sheet or your phone or it may even come up on the screens, we're going to look at a few of our verses before we do, I have to set the context because where we left off last week was Acts 2, 42 through 47, and today we're picking up at 4, 23 or 4, somewhere in there, which is like two chapters. So here's what's happened since we last met in the story of God in the book of Acts as the church is beginning to move outward bound. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. 3,000 people are converted. The church is born. They begin to become blueberries. And then something happens. Peter and John going to the temple, going to worship, going to church, if you will. They see a man who is a beggar who asks them for money, and they say, we don't have any coins to give you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And they lift him up, and he is healed. And he begins leaping and shouting and praising God, and it is an absolute scene which draws a crowd and people ask, what's going on? And they say, this has been done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens? They get in trouble. The world and the religious system come against them. The political rulers, the Sanhedrin, and the temple priests are angry that they're speaking in the name of Jesus, and they arrest them. And they bring them before this body of leaders, the world party system, the political party, as well as the religious elite and leadership and in the end they basically say to Peter and John stop talking in the name of Jesus and they say we got to obey God rather than man and that's our setup for today look at your text with me as we begin in verse 23 when they were released it's like 24 36 48 hours later they went 
to their friends. They didn't go home. They didn't go back to their jobs. They didn't go to their family of origin. They went to their friends, their intimate companions, the fellowship, the koinonia. They went to the Blueberry Festival where they were known and they were loved. They were known and they were loved. You know, years ago, we had Brennan Manning speak in this church before he died. And it was a really remarkable weekend. He told a lot of stories and really opened up grace to us in some amazing ways. And I remember one of the stories that he told was about two guys, we'll call them Bill and Steve. In Brennan's words, they were gloriously in their cups, which is a polite way of saying they were mighty tipsy. This is an Anglican service today, right? They're in the pub, they're gloriously in their cups, they're very tipsy, their inhibitions are down. And in the midst of that, the first guy, Bill, says to his buddy, Steve, I love you, man. To which his buddy says, no, man, I love you. And then they begin the competition. No, I love you. I love you. I love you. No, no, no. I love you. And then Steve says to him, well, if you love me, tell me what hurts me. To which his buddy says, how can I know what hurts you? And he responded, how can you say you love me if you don't know what hurts me? Let me ask you a question. And this is not for our visitors today. This is for our regulars. Who in this congregation knows what hurts you? And if you're in a church from somewhere else, who in your church knows what hurts you? Because if nobody knows what hurts you, where your pains are, where your sorrows are, where your defeats have been, where your victories are, the ways in which God is moving in your life to make newness out of death, to bring life out of dust, then you're living a tennis ball kind of church existence. And what God wants you in is a blueberry life. Who knows what hurts you? Who loves you? And it can't just be me. There are far too many of you. What are you celebrating? What are you crying over? What is your heart breaking in prayer before God over? And who knows it? Who's holding you up? Who's walking beside you? Who's seen you on your worst days and loves you anyway outside of your immediate family? Does anybody? It's one of the reasons we emphasize our life groups so much because you can't really do what I'm talking about in here on a Sunday morning. But here's the thing, life groups aren't the answer, it's just the vehicle. You can be in a life group that's as dead as dead can be if nobody's willing to let down their guard and let the word of God in and open up in vulnerability to others who can pray with you and see you. The world does not want to see you. But in Christ, it's safe to be known because we're all sinners saved by grace. No one has anything to boast about except for the fact that we have a remarkable and loving God who's done everything to make us his own through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who are you connected to? Who knows you? They went to their friends. And notice what they did in verse 24, and when they heard it, when they heard what had happened, when they heard the tale, when they heard about their pain and their their difficulty, they lifted their voice together to God. They prayed. They sought the Lord. 
They cried out with one another for their friends who had just been, who had really taken a beating in that sense. And this is the beginning of where persecution is going to start unfolding in the church as we watch the book of Acts move forward. See, here's the thing. We are not called to fix each other. We can't. We might be tempted to, but please don't. Pray for each other. Seek the Lord together. He's the only one who can fix it anyway. Some of us need more fixing than others. And notice, they cry out to the sovereign Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of the seas and all that is in them, which is a Bible way of saying he's got everything under control despite how it looks. Nothing gets beyond his sight. And so, Lord, we call upon you, sovereign and almighty and holy Lord. And notice what and how they pray. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2, by the way. They're praying the scriptures. They're praying the Bible. What they're doing is they're seeing reality happening around them, not as the definer of what they see. They're looking through the lens of a biblical framework. They've got a biblical worldview. They understand that what's happening to them is defined by God and by his word and not by the powers and the problems and the persecutions that they face. Friends, I want to ask you, are you being shaped like that? To see the world with the eyes of faith, to see through the lens of Scripture. The only way that happens is if you thumb through the pages of the Bible as much as you thumb through your social media. Are you being more shaped by whichever political party you're a part of, whichever news source you pay attention to? Are you more shaped and discipled by the world and their view? Or are you allowing your view of Scripture to see what's right and what's wrong, what's correct and what's incorrect about all the things happening around us? See, they prayed the Word of God. They knew the Word of God. They saw the Word of God. They ate the Word of God. They breathed the Word of God. And because of that... They were able to not get swayed by the problems and the pains and the persecutions. They kept it in perspective. You don't see them lost in anxiety, crushed in depression. You see them calling upon the Lord in community. And why? Well, because the powers of the world are arrayed against them. They're about to see the full fury of what the religious system and the political system will do. Remember, it was the religious system and the political system that killed Jesus. I mean, there were a lot of other people involved, but they were the primary movers. And here they're running into the religious system and the political system again, and the pressures that they face. And you know that there are all these pressures that go on if you name the name of Jesus. Some of you, and I've spoken with you over the years, in your places of employment, if you were to say the name of Jesus, you would fear you would lose your job, right? Some, you don't have to say it, but I've talked to a few of you because you can talk about church. You can talk about your Bible study. You can talk about potluck breakfast, and we're going to have that in a little while. 
But if you name the name of Jesus, that's when people get riled up. That's when people get all bent out of shape. That's when the world systems move against his anointed one. It has always been that way. It will always be that way. I've told this story before, but the first time that I was in a job interview coming out of seminary, sitting at a church, I'm sitting at a table with several clergy, and at one point, as the interview went on, and I could tell it wasn't going well, it just felt icier and icier as we went. This one clergy person looked across the table and sneered at me, you sure do use the J word a lot. I said, you mean Jesus? And it, it was almost a sneer. Yeah, him. See, it was a church, but it wasn't a spirit-filled church. It wasn't, it wasn't a blueberry church. It was a gathering of people who barely knew each other and wanted to be religious and safe and wanted nothing to do with God. Nothing. To, they did not want God to invade their lives. They wanted to go to heaven. They just didn't like the way you have to go to get there. What a tragedy. Mercy. Notice how they pray. They don't pray for comfort. They don't pray for ease, like the things that we usually pray for. Make it stop. That's not a bad prayer, by the way. I pray that prayer. They just didn't pray that prayer. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Help us to speak the word boldly. What's the word? You don't have to know the whole Bible. The word is Jesus. And everything in the words point to Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know enough. Help us to speak the word. Give us boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal to do signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Look at verse 31. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, not the clergy. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See, here's the thing. The only way this church grows is if you're about kingdom work. The days of if you build it, they will come are over unless they got dragged in for dad on Father's Day. My kids aren't here today because I might drag them in. They're in other parts of the world. I miss them. Unless we do it. We got great preaching. Shoot, we got the canon theologian of the diocese. We got people who, who move in power and anointing in the word of God. There's a new day and age if we don't reach out to people because we're so captivated by Jesus and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, living as blueberry people. Churches, ours and others, will just keep getting smaller and smaller. Or we can build great programs and we can get them in to ride ponies and jump on jump castles. And then when things get hard, they'll leave. Because program doesn't fix it either. Look at what happens in verse 32. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart. Everybody say one heart. And one soul. Say one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. And a few uh, words later, great grace was upon them. And there was not a needy person among them. There's a freedom when you become a blueberry. And the freedom is this. You stop being possessed by your possessions. And that's what we see happening as one of the clearest and most primary influences of the presence of God. Right? There's a freedom to let go for the sake of the fellowship. And this is not Christian communism, by the way. It doesn't mean you can't own properties. That's a bad read on the text. But it's people willing to give away what they have in the expectation of a God who gives. Communism says we'll all work together to put a shirt on everyone's back. But Christian fellowship, Quinonius says, take the shirt off your own back for whoever doesn't have one and trust that God will give you another shirt when you need it. That's Quinonia. That's the power of not being possessed by your possessions, but being possessed by the one who is mighty to save. Now, Pastor Francis Chan tells a wonderful story about his church in L.A. So this was some years ago. He's been in other places since, but he's preaching, and he's a very good preacher, and a gang member wanders into the church one Sunday, and the guy gets radically saved, like new creation right there. He gets baptized. The guy starts coming for a while, and he comes for a while, and like he's changing and he's letting go of his gang ways and he's starting to, to be a different person. They can see it and then one Sunday he disappears. And then he's gone and then he's gone and then he's gone and they finally, they track him down. And when they asked him why he stopped attending, I, this is what he said, I'm gonna quote him. I had the wrong idea of what church was going to be like. When I joined the church, I thought it was going to be like joining a gang. See, in the gangs, we weren't just nice to each other once a week. We were a family. You hear that? We were a family. We were blueberries, not tennis balls. Now, here's the beauty. If you're under any kind of conviction today, and I know you are because I have been all week, there is one who has done everything that he asks us to do and is willing to give us what we need to be his people. You see, he didn't just let go of a couple of properties on earth. He let go of heaven itself and entered in. He didn't come to be on a cruise ship. He knew full well his life was going to be fully aboard a battleship. And on that battleship, he would be fighting for the hearts and lives of those of us who are tennis balls. He alone was the true blueberry. And he took up the cross that he invited us to take up. And he bore that cross and he bore that sin and he died that death. And why did he do that? Well, he said it on the cross, Father, forgive them because they're blueberries. They don't really know what they're doing. But, but when we trust him, and, and when we really start allowing his spirit to change us, when we are convicted by what we hear in the scriptures and we see that our life does not amount to what he is inviting us to, to his best and our great good for the sake of the world that's dying apart from him, when we see that and we come to him in faith, 
he willingly pours out the Spirit upon us. He will give you courage. He will make you new. He will shape your life. He will forgive your sin. He will give you the courage you've never had before. For what? To be a blueberry in the world, to be his person. And for what reason? So that others are blessed. And so that the beautiful and glorious Lord Jesus Christ is worshiped and known. He's building a family. He wants koinonia. That's his design. And he will give it to us if we ask for it. So this is what I want you to do. Because this is a do sermon. Not always do sermons, but this is a do sermon. You have a bulletin insert. Hopefully you got when you came in on the side of your bulletin insert. I want you to tear it off. Go ahead. Let's all do it at the same time so nobody feels like, oh, I'm standing out. <laughs> Just go ahead. Let's make that happy ripping sound. Let's let them hear it online. And online, you can do this in the chat. And, and what I want you to do in the next little while, as we're moving through the prayers and we're heading into confession, before we... Uh, take up the offering. I want you to just write on. You don't have to write your name. You can. Oh my gosh. Like wherever you have been convicted today or you've been encouraged. I realize I'm a blueberry. Why don't you write that down? It might be good for you to say. Or gosh, I've seen I've been a tennis ball. And it's in this area that I need you, Lord. And when the offering plates come around, just put them in the offering plates. And we're going to pray over those. And I'm going to pray for us this week. It might be that you're like, you know what? I've been being called to be on the prayer team and I've been resisting for like five years. Write it down. And put your name on that one if, if there's something you need to do that I need to know about <laughs> so I can get in touch with you. I'm called to serve. I'm, man, I'm a happy person. I could stand at the door and smile at people. Don't hear the word and walk away and forget what it says. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your love for us. You are crazy in love with us. You take the dust and you bring life. Lord, would you show us the places where, where we're out of sync with what the church is meant to be? Would you, would you guide us and lead us, Lord? Would you convict us that we might repent and turn to you, not in condemnation, but unto salvation? that you might take us who are far away and bring us near, bring us home, make us part of the family. And above all, Lord, above all, help us to fall so deeply in love with you that we start to see the world differently. Jesus, for your sake, and in your name we pray this. Amen.